Hey, this is John Morgan. I'm the lead pastor here at Word of Life Church in the nation's capital. I want to personally thank you for taking time out to listen to our podcast today. It's our prayer that you're inspired and that your life is changed for the better while listening. So go ahead, enjoy today's message. Uh, Pastor John's been preaching a message, God, a series called God, Me, and 2023. And today I get to wrap up that series all about the book of Proverbs and wisdom. How many know we need wisdom in our life today to navigate what's going on in the world around us? You know, uh, today we're looking at the what it means to respond to wisdom. That's what I'm going to be talking about today. I hope you all have been into your prayer journals, the, looking at Proverbs, to, and we've been fasting together, we've been praying together, we've been preparing our hearts for everything God's going to do this year in 2023. So as God has spoken, what are we going to do with that? So let's, let's start out. This has been our, our core verse, our anchor verse for this series has been in Proverbs chapter 1, verse 2, all about wisdom. Wisdom is for gaining wisdom and instruction, for understanding words of insight, for receiving instruction in prudent behavior, doing what is right and just and fair, for giving prudence to those who are simple, knowledge and discretion to the young. Let the wise add to their learning and let the discerning get guidance for understanding proverbs and parables, the sayings and the riddles of the wise, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom and knowledge. But fools despise wisdom and instruction. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Can we pray this morning? Lord Jesus, we thank you so much for your presence that has been so evidently felt here in this house today. We thank you for your faithful goodness towards us. And Lord Jesus, we open our hearts right now to receive your word. God, we ask that you would speak to each one of us right where we are. God, let your word read us as we read it and reveal to us the ways that you're working in our hearts and our lives. Father, we just invite you to speak and to change, transform us, make us like you. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen, amen. I don't know if any of you grew up in households like mine. We had a lot of books. And uh, my father was an avid reader. Both of my parents were. Um, but my dad had a habit of buying books that he never got around to reading. Had a lot of books, had stacks. This was his like, I'm going to get to it stack. And this is the, I'm working on it right now stack. And this is the, uh, I've read the first chapter, but I need to get to the rest of it stack. Anybody, anyone like that? I definitely inherited that tendency. I've got a little mini stack by my bedside table, but most of my books I read these days on Kindle. So I have private stacks that nobody can see. They're digital stacks of things. You know, you get out there and you're like, oh man, I, that sounds like a great book. I need that. Or you're like, man, I really need to learn about this one thing. Let me get that book. And then you're like, at some point, I'm going to have time to read all of the books that I have and get through them all. Maybe, if, you know, if I buy them on Kindle and I buy them digitally, then they'll just like download into my brain at some point. I won't actually have to read them. Anyone else like that? Or I do this all the time. I'll wander through a bookstore sometimes and you just get overwhelmed. Or at the library, it's like so much. 
Like, what do you pick? Okay, you want to you want a book about money? Well, here's three bookshelves about how to improve your finances. What are you going to pick? You know, there's so much out there. How do we know what wisdom to get? How do we know what we should learn? You know, it's not a new pursuit. We've been thinking about this for a long time as humanity, ever since the ancient times. You know, Proverbs was written in antiquity, in the ancient Near East, and this was actually a tradition a lot of different cultures went after. The Greeks went after it. They called it logos. And, you know, it's the foundation of a lot of the philosophies and the ideas that undergird our societies today come out of that. And the Jewish tradition that was called Sophia, it's a Greek word that comes out of that the Hebrew word hokmah for, for wisdom. And this is what the book of Proverbs comes out of, this Jewish tradition of Hebrew literature. And so wisdom is learning and knowledge, both the pursuit and the getting of it. It's the ability to understand the world in the right way, to make sense of things accurately. What we know, how we think, how we respond to things, what we choose, how we follow through with what we know discernment of what God wants for our lives. So I want to look today, we're going to start here in the book of Proverbs. And in Proverbs chapters four through seven, we jump in on this conversation that is described here in the the book of Proverbs. It's a conversation between a father and a son. And the father is trying to instill in his son the importance of of knowledge, the importance of getting wisdom. And so he puts this in a way that he knows his young son is going to value. He, gets, he puts it in a way that, he, that his young son is going to understand. And so he describes wisdom as a woman. Wisdom is this very attractive woman as opposed to fe- foolishness, another, another woman. So he paints this picture. W- wisdom is like the woman that everyone wants. It's, she's beautiful. She's gorgeous. She's absolutely kind. She is smart. She's successful. She's funny, but she's also warm and caring. And she's rich. She's every man's dream. She's the woman that you pursue at any cost, and then you do whatever you need to do to keep her. This is what that woman is. So in Proverbs chapter, chapter 4, verse 7, this father describes this ideal to his son. He says, the beginning of wisdom is this, get wisdom. Though it costs you all you have, get understanding. Cherish her and she will exalt you. Embrace her and she will honor you. She will give you a garland to grace your head and present you with a glorious crown. This is, this is the woman that makes you look good just because they're with you. They're the one that just, just because they said yes, your status gets elevated. This is, what, this is what wisdom is. Sophia wisdom. She's not something that we can just flippantly dismiss or think is unobtainable. And this is what the father says. You know, you think of those people as sort of un- unobtainable. Like you could, never, you could never be with that person. But wisdom is actually not elusive. She's not running from you. She's looking for you. She's calling you. She's waiting for you. This is what the father says in chapter 8, verse 1. Does not wisdom call out? Does not understanding raise her voice? At the highest point along the way, where the paths meet, she takes her stand. Beside the gate leading into the city, at the entrance, she cries aloud. To you, O people, I call out. I raise my voice to all mankind. 
The father's saying, you know what, wisdom, it's not hard to find. It's not hard to get. You know what, I wonder, how often do we want wisdom? Do we ask for wisdom? And then we actually receive it. We get it, but we don't like the answer. So we keep looking. We keep looking for a different answer. We ask someone else and we keep asking until we get the answer that we prefer. You know, the father describes a second woman here, worldly wisdom. In Proverbs 9, verse 13, he says, Folly is an unruly woman. She is simple and knows nothing. Now, just let me pause for a moment in case you're starting to think this is about gender. This is not about gender. This is an allegory. The father's using an illustration that he knows his son is going to understand. His son is going to get this idea of these two women. But this could be a father with a daughter. And these could be two men in this, in this story. These are two different kinds of ideas. You have wisdom, and now you have foolishness. Worldly wisdom is foolishness. Seductive. Makes you want it. Dishonest. Restless. Adulterous who makes the son foolish, lazy, and poor. In Proverbs verse, chapter 9, the father describes her. She says, let all who are simple come to my house. To those who have no sense, she says, stolen water is sweet. Food eaten in secret is delicious. But little do they know that the dead are there, that her guests are deep in the realm of the dead. Yikes, Yeah. It's that foolishness. It produces death. You know, if it's stolen, if it's secret, if it's producing death in something, it's probably not wisdom. So how do we find it? How do we find wisdom? You know, in cultures, we have a lot of different ways of accessing knowledge, of considering whether something is true or not. And how we determine what's truth is very influenced by our culture, whether we recognize it or not. So here's some of the ways that we decide something is truth, that something is wisdom in our culture here today. Why is it true? Number one, when you want to know something, what do you do? You Google it. It's true because the Internet says it's true. You know, the Internet has revolutionized the way that we access information. And so much about it is good, right? You can find any subject. You can find thousands, maybe even millions of hits about any particular topic. It's giant, easily searchable. It's our collective compendium of cultural wisdom. But with such a flood of information, how do we tell which sources are good sources, right? You know, there's a lot of things we, we look for on the internet. I don't know, has anyone ever used WebMD and their symptom checker? Anyone ever done that? I know, I for sure have. You know, you get in there too far and it's like what you thought was like a little scratch. Now it turns out you're dying and you're like, <laughs> you, you tell your husband, you're like, hey, I think, I think there's a real problem here we're going to have to address. But it can get out of hand, right? It was actually just a scratch, but the internet tells us that we have cancer and now we're about to die. That's, that's the way this works. You know, or we look at something and it's like, okay, it's true because Wikipedia says it's true. This is an article on Wikipedia. But then when you start digging through all the links at the very bottom of the page and there's like broken links that take you nowhere, there's links that go to something that's about something totally different. And you're like, this is not what that said. There's, there are 
all over the internet or it's information that's just not true or that we misapply, that we misunderstand. You know, we need quality sources. I don't know how many times somebody has told me, I saw this meme that my aunt's coworker posted and it really felt true. And we, and we run with it because it's something that just got posted on social media, right? We need wisdom in how we access the internet, how we find what's true that's out there in the internet. Okay. Second thing, this is where we find wisdom in our culture today, because tradition says it's true. That's how we know it's true. Something we've always understood to be true. This is how we do it. It's how we've always done it. You know, tradition gives us that sense of rootedness to the past, stability, consistency. It gives us life rhythms. It gives us steadiness. It's how we know what to celebrate. But it also can put us in a rut and get us stuck, right? There's all kinds of things out there. Long ago, people thought the world was flat. For generations and generations, that was the traditional view of the world. But then somebody discovered maybe it's actually not flat. Very controversial. Very controversial. But we're not always right in those things. There's an old story. Some of you may have heard this old story about a woman and every time she made ham, she cut off the end of her ham and put it in the oven to roast. And so she did this for years and years and years. And her kids grew up one day and were like, Mom, why do you cut off the end of your ham when you make ham? And she thought about that. And she's like, well, it's the way we've always done it. It's the way my mom did it. She cut off the end of her ham. And so that's what I do. That's how you make ham. You cut off the end. I guess it's bad. So the kids went to grandma when she came over and they're like, grandma, why do you cut off the end of your ham when you make ham? And she's like, huh? What are you talking about? Like, cut off the end of your ham. Why, why do you cut off the end of your ham? And she's like, oh, well, I had a roasting pan. It was too small to fit a whole ham in it. So I'd cut the end off so it would fit in my pan and then put it in the oven to roast. But for gener- for, a whole, for years, this woman's cutting off the end of her ham because that's the way we always do it. That's just, that's just what we do. That's how we make ham. You know, third, third thing we do to find truth, to find wisdom, is it's true because science says it's true, right? That's a big one these days. And you know what? The scientific method has given us incredible discoveries, given us so much insight, so many helpful things, advancements in our health, in medicine, so many advancements in technology, all kinds of great things have come out of it. And I I don't think that science and the Bible are incompatible when you look at them in depth. There's a lot of great things. But you know what? The more we know in science, the more we realize we don't know, that there's so much left still to understand, so much yet left to learn. And science is always discovering all the ways that it was wrong, the things that it thought were true that, that aren't actually true. You know what? I grew up in a home, and we used to eat on our toast every morning. We had margarine. We were a margarine house. Anyone else grew up eating margarine? And, you know, it's like this vegetable oil-based spread substitute for butter. And science said this is healthier for you than, than butter is. But about a, decade, about a decade ago, they realized, oh, this is actually one of the deadliest things that you could eat. 
<laughs> saturated fat. It's very bad for you, especially this particular kind, this particular kind of fat. It's the worst thing. Butter's been better for you all along. I remember how bitter my dad was because I think he started eating butter, margarine. always hated margarine, but been eating margarine because it's supposed to be healthier for you for decades. Uh, but I guarantee since that day, he has not eaten margarine again. Neither have I for that matter. But science is always figuring out things that it got wrong, things it has to, it has to correct. You know, we, there's, all, there's, there's a fourth thing that we use to access truth, to access wisdom, is because the elders said so. You know, this is the oldest, the most respected, most revered person in our group said that this was true. It's collective wisdom that gets passed down through sayings and practices and things that we do. Cultural wisdom. And we see the wisdom in listening to people who have had more life experience than we do. You know what? The older I get, the more I like this source of wisdom, right? (laughs) The older you get, the more you're like, okay, I I do know some things that maybe you don't know yet. But this can be problematic too, you know, when elders get it wrong, because this happens. Culture's not always right. You know, my grandmother, uh, she's gone on to be with Jesus. Uh, she grew up as a, as a white woman in the South, and she lived with a lot of fear about people who looked different, who came from different places, spoke different languages, had different cultures than she did. She was a racist. It's not that kind of collective wisdom from elders is something we don't need to keep with us. We need to let that go. It's not always wise. I have another student, a doctoral student who's doing some research. She comes from um, an indigenous cultural group, a tribal group. And the wisdom of the elders in her group is that fathers own the sexuality of all of the women in their family. There's a lot of sexual abuse that goes on and is permitted by that cultural group. And she's starting to look at all the ways that that has been harmful, that that's traumatized. So we gotta be careful, even with wisdom that comes from our elders, to make sure, hey, is this actually right? Just because we've always done it this way, is this actually right? Is this actually true? Fourth, fifth thing, we think it's true because our closest relationships have said that it's true. And you know what? This breaks down all the time on us. We hear something and then it's like, okay, that got twisted when it was communicated through. And sometimes, you know, it's just, uh, it's not always trustworthy, but sometimes it is trustworthy. I think a lot of times we'll hear things, we'll hear truth from people who are close to us and we don't want to hear it. There's a trend where we are starting to think about accountability as abuse, And those two things are getting conflated as the same thing. But you know what? It's not always the case. You know, sometimes we'll go to someone we love and we just, we tell them something. We want, we want to be uh, an arm around us and someone to just tell us it's going to be okay and bring us some comfort. But sometimes what we actually need is for someone to say, hey, you're thinking about this the wrong way. Uh, But when that happens, then that person becomes the enemy. That person becomes the source of our pain, the, the, the problem in our situation. But you know what? If somebody loves you and they're not demeaning you, they're not devaluing you, maybe it's accountability. There's a good measuring stick for measuring what we're hearing from people who love us. James 3 verse 17 says, but the wisdom that comes from heaven is first of all pure. 
is what we're hearing pure. Then peace-loving. Is this going to produce peace in my relationships, in my life? Consider it. Thinks about other people. Submissive. It lets go. Full of mercy and good fruit. Impartial. That one's a hard one. Because we always want people who love us to be on our side, right? We don't want them to be impartial. We want you to take my side. But wisdom is impartial. Sincere. Peacemakers who sow in peace reap a harvest of righteousness. Number six. It's true because I say it's true. It's true because my experience says it's true. You know, and I think a lot of us have had trust broken by things in society, whether it's like, okay, science said one thing and then they changed their mind or the internet said one thing, but it turns out that that was wrong. So we have a lot of distrust for what all of our sources of truth. And so ultimately in our culture today, it's coming down to this. My truth is the most important truth. My experience is what's actually true. And you know what, then it moves into this whole thing where only people who have had the same experience can speak to us about that experience and that everyone else has no voice. And then we create this little echo chamber for ourselves, and that becomes compounded by all the algorithms on the internet and social media that continue to feed us the same ideas and reinforce what we think is true because it's my truth. But you know what? If your experience growing up was banks can't be trusted, that the smartest thing to do with your money is to put it in your mattress, let me tell you, when you hit right around 67 years old, that truth is going to let you down. It might be your truth, but it's not a wise truth. It's not wisdom. Proverbs chapter 3 and verse 5 says, trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. Lean not on your own understanding. Lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways, submit to him and he will make your path straight. Do not be wise in your own eyes. That's so hard. I must say it again. Do not be wise in your own eyes. Do not be wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and shun evil. This will bring health to your body and nourishment to your bones. You know, we all need safety checks on wisdom. How do we weigh out all these sources of wisdom and figure out what's actually going to be helpful, what's actually true, what's actually trustworthy? By our primary source, and this is number seven, this is where we find wisdom because God says so. It's true because God says so. And you know what? Because God is creative with his words, as soon as he says it, it becomes true. That's the way that it works. He speaks things into being. And you know what? As Christians, the Bible is our foundation for truth. The Bible is the word of God. It was inspired by God. He spoke to mankind. It was revealed to them. It is infallible and it is authoritative in our lives as Christians. And when we interpret it correctly, it lights the way forward and it guides us into truth. Job 28 says in verse 23, God understands the way to wisdom and he alone knows where it dwells for he views the ends of the earth and sees everything under the heavens. 
Doesn't matter when it happened. Doesn't matter where it happened. He saw it all. He sees everything. He understands everything. There's nothing that's surprising to him that's going on. And his wisdom is eternal. The principles and the precepts that are there are forever true. And he said to the human race, the fear of the Lord, that is wisdom. And to shun evil is understanding. You know what? What does it mean to fear the Lord? It means to say, okay, God, I recognize that you are bigger, that you are greater than me. And so I'm going to let you lead. I'm going to put you in charge. I'm going to defer to you. I'm going to say, I'm going to assume that you are true, that you are correct about things. It says here to stay away from evil things. You know, we just don't need to engage it. We don't need to get involved. We, need, we don't need to check it out. Just stay away from it. That's wisdom. You know, God's wisdom helps us to accurately predict outcomes for decisions. It helps us to make those good decisions and to thrive as a result of those decisions that we make. So we really need to understand what wisdom around us can be trusted. You know what? If you get a major diagnosis, you know, and you, you go to your doctor and your doctor's like, that's it, you need a hip replacement. It's a great idea to get a second opinion, right? You go ask somebody else. You don't just trust the one source. You know, or it's a very bad idea in finance to take all your money and put it into one thing, into one stock or one fund. Wisdom is that you diversify. You get input from multiple sources, and so this is how we need to think about wisdom. You know what? If you need something in your life, if you need wisdom in your life about finances, don't just go to the internet and say, okay, I'm going to make my decision based on that. Maybe talk to an advisor. Go to the word of God and see what it says. Find multiple sources of wisdom because those provide safety nets for you in navigating what is wise. And we've got to, we've got to be able to discern what is God's wisdom and what's, what's human wisdom. So, you know, there's a, something in our culture today, I, social justice movements have brought a lot of good, but there's also some attitudes that have come as a result of it that are maybe not so good. So, for example, social, social justice says that there are some sins that can never be forgiven. They need to be canceled. That person can no longer be part of society. That person can no longer have a voice. They're done for good, right? Cancel culture. And... This is contrary to biblical wisdom because the Bible encourages us to forgive as the Lord forgave us. The Bible says to look at our own sin first before we start pointing a finger at somebody else's, right? This is, this is Bible wisdom. But there's something that can be vengeful in our, in our cultural wisdom. It makes me think of this, this story. Um, and I, when I was a kid... When I was very small, we lived in the state of New York. There's rolling green hills. You know, we had a lawn, gardens. It backed up to f this forest land. So that's when I was very small. That's what we had. When I was five, my dad got a job, and we moved to Tucson, Arizona. It's in the southwest in the middle of the Sonoran Desert. Totally different, right? And so I went from having this green lawn. I remember the first time we came to our new house and the whole yard was just rocks. It's all like gray rocks that match. I don't know if any of you have lived in a place where there's no lawns. It's just landscaped with rocks, literally. And then cactus in the yard. 
We'd never seen a cactus before. I just didn't have any experience in what to do with it. And there was one cactus in particular. It's called a choya cactus. And uh, can you show them that picture of the choya cactus? This is in our front yard, this choya cactus. Now, there's another name for this. It's known as the jumping cactus. So I was about five. My older sister, I think, was about seven. And my little brother was three when we came, right? And I can't tell you how many times over the course of the next 10 years he got involved with cactuses and got on the bad end of that. But this started that day, that first day we were there. I think he must, I don't know what he was doing, but he brushed past this cactus. And as soon as you brush, brush past a choya cactus, this is what happens. It loses a whole piece of itself to lodge itself into you. That's why they call it a jumping cactus. If you try to shake that thing off, the barbs are just going to go deeper into your skin. So you can imagine my little three-year-old brother has one of these things sticking out of him, and he is screaming like his life is about to end, and my parents are stressed out. They've never seen this before. You know, they're trying to figure out how to get this thing out of him, and I remember just getting mad. I was like, how dare that cactus do that to my little baby brother? How dare it? And there was another cactus in the yard. It was called, this is called an Ocotillo cactus. And there was one of these little arms that was growing out across the path there. But what you don't see from that picture is that it also has some spines on it. I don't know if they have this, yes, these little close-up of these little spines. So here I am, five years old, and I just get mad. I'm like, I'm going to get revenge on this cactus, these, these horrible cactuses for being so horrible. I just took my foot and stamped right down on that, that cactus. And believe you me, my little flip-flops, they went right through my flip-flops, right up into my foot, and stabbed me right through. But I think it's such a, an apt illustration for what happens so many of the times when we, when we get all wrapped up in how we're going to get revenge and how we're going to get even because most of the time what winds up hurting is us we think we're going to hurt something else but we are actually the ones who wind up hurt by the foolishness that exists in culture when we lean on our wisdom when we lean on culture's wisdom and don't access God's wisdom it hurts us so we get wise when we're using all of those sorts of, of wisdom. Now, we especially need to make sure that when we're accessing wisdom, when, it, when we're looking at issues of ethics, issues of morality, issues of spirituality, that we're really wise about how we access wisdom in those things, how we access what we know. Now, there was a man by the name of John Wesley... And he really is responsible for all of us being here today. He lived a long time ago, several hundred years ago. Um, but he developed something called the Wesleyan quadrilateral. The Wesleyan quadrilateral. Now, this is a measuring stick for how we determine what is spiritually true, how, how we measure this. Now, John, John Wesley founded the Methodist movement. There, I'm sure you've heard of Methodist churches as a denomination. And for us, we're an Assemblies of God church, which is part of the, a byproduct of the Pentecostal revival that happened in the early 20th century. And that came out of the Methodist movement. So have you, as you trace our history, back. He's one of the, the people who's responsible for the way we do church today, the way we have Christianity and think about it. Now, he said there's four things that you need to look at when you're trying to measure what is spiritually true, what is spiritually reliable and trustworthy. So the first thing is scripture. Scripture is the final authority, and it has something to say about everything in our life. 
something to say about how we have relationships, how we relate to God. It has things to say about how we manage money, how we raise families. It has things to say about how we live well, how we live righteously. It has things to say about everything that there is in human, in human society. Second thing that we can use to, to gauge truth, to get knowledge, to understand wisdom is tradition. Now, Christian tradition stretches all the way back through to the early church and the conversation that Jesus had with Peter when he established his church before he left the planet. There are hundreds of years of Christian thought and conversations and writings and things that connect us all the way back to, to that time, to that era. Now, it, it helps us understand things that are part of Christianity that aren't necessarily in the Bible. So, for example, denomination is a word that you're never going to find in the Bible. It doesn't exist in the Bible. It didn't exist at that point in time. But denominations are a way that we can unite around a set of ideas, around a set of doctrine and understanding Christian ideas. It's also a way that we unite in mission, that we say, okay, God, we're going to obey your great commission to go into all the world and make disciples. And it becomes a unifying point. Now, I've been part of denominations. I've also been part of churches that were non-denominational. They're all part of the big C church. But understanding tradition can help us navigate wisdom in what are Christian traditions. All right, third thing is reason. This is the third piece that John Wesley said. This is another safety net for us when we're trying to gauge what is spiritual truth. Reason is another tool that we use, that God gave us a mind. He gave us a way to put things together. We need reason to be able to interpret and understand Scripture correctly. So we don't just take one verse out of the Bible and then hold it and say, this is going to be um, absolute truth, and we understand everything that there is to know about a subject because of this single verse. It's a, it's a dangerous way to do it. So we use reason to look in the Bible all throughout and start to pick out all of the things that are related to that subject, related to that idea, and then those things together, we put together to make theology, to make ideas that make all of those dots connect in the Bible. For example, you won't see the word Trinity anywhere in the Bible. That is not a Bible word. It's a theological word that the church has developed to use to explain all those verses that are all through the Bible that tell us who God is. God is a father. God is a son, Jesus, that was sent to the world as fully man, as fully God, that died and three days later was resurrected and went on to heaven. And God, the Holy Spirit, the comforter who was sent to be with us and is with us today, continues to empower us, continues to encourage us. All three persons are present in the Trinity in perfect unity, three in one. So we have this word Trinity that's a piece of reason to explain this spiritual truth that we find all through the Bible. Fourth thing in the Wesleyan quadrilateral that John Wesley gave us to help measure truth, to help measure wisdom is experience. You know, he said, what scripture teaches, I enjoy. 
So this is all about how we live out and experience the truths of God in our lives. You know what? I don't just know that God heals because I read it in the Bible. I know that God heals because I have seen it worked out in my own life. I don't just know that God delivers because I have read it somewhere. I know that God delivers because I've experienced it in my own life. I know that God frees because I have experienced it in my own life. I don't just know that God provides because it's in a verse. I know that he provides because I've seen him provide for my needs. I've seen him put food on my table. I've seen him provide for the bills in my life. I don't just know that he is a God who is present in the here and now. I know it because I've experienced his power. I've experienced his goodness. I've experienced his love. I've experienced the power of his presence in worship. You know, in, in Pentecostal Christianity, we understand the importance of experience. But you know what? If I lean on experience only, that can be dangerous because not every experience is God, right? If I lean on reason alone, that can be dangerous. But all four things work together to give us spiritual wisdom in our life. It gives us one, two, three, four levels of safety in gauging what spiritual wisdom is. You know, we need God's wisdom. We need it. But let me tell you, if it's God's wisdom, it should bear fruit, not just make you fruity. There's an old saying my youth pastor used to say when I was growing up, that don't be so heavenly minded that you're no earthly good. It should ground itself in the ground and bear fruit in our lives. In the same way, we shouldn't be so earthly minded that we're no heavenly good. We need both. We, needed, we need a balance in our life. We need a balance in our spirituality. You know, God's wisdom will work when we put it into practice. Matthew 7, Jesus taught us this in verse 24. He said, therefore, anyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rain came down, the streams rose, the winds beat and blew against that house, and yet it did not fall because it had its foundation on the rock. But everyone who hears these words of mine and does not put them into practice is like a foolish man who built his house on sand. The rains came down, the streams rose, the winds beat and blew against that house, and it fell with a great crash. You know, it's one thing to know something or to believe something. It's a whole different thing to put that into practice. And the truth of what we really believe comes out in our behavior. It comes out in the choices that we make. It comes out in how we live our daily life. We need wisdom. We need God's wisdom in our lives. And you know what? I think sometimes we get stuck and we think, I'm too old to learn something new. And uh, there's an old saying, you can't teach an old dog new tricks. But it's just not true. There's a science is discovering more and more each day about neuro, neuroplasticity. Neuroplasticity is the ability that our brains have to continually recreate itself, to make new connections, to, to develop new neurons, that even in old age, we can keep learning, we can keep changing, we can keep growing in wisdom, we can keep developing in who God has called us to be. I want to show you something here, the Johari window. Can you put that up for me? This is a, t a communication tool. 
And just so you understand what this is, up at the top, there are things that I know that are known by self on the top left, and there's things I don't know. Okay? And then along the side here, the top on the left side, there are things that you know, and there are things that you don't know. So as we're interacting here, there are things that I know and that you know about me. They're open. They're revealed. They're the things that are just public information. We both know that I am a pastor. We both know that I am teaching this message right there. There's no secret. We both know I'm married to Pastor John Morgan. But there are things over here underneath that are hidden or masked. They're things that I know that you don't know. There's things that you know that I don't know. Things about your childhood. And you know, we all have a way that we want to be perceived by the world. We have information that we want to share or that we don't want to share. Then over here on the bottom right side, there are things that you don't know and things that I don't know. That we just don't know. They're just potential. Only God knows those things that are possible. And then on the top right, there are things that you know that I don't know. They're blind spots in my life. We all have them. We all have things that we don't know that we don't know. But everyone else knows. Maybe in our family, maybe at work, maybe our friends. We have those blind spots. And we need wisdom in how we apply those things to our, how we, how we work on those blind spots in our life, how we work on those hidden things in our life that we don't want anyone to know about. I want to look at this story of Jesus and this rich young ruler in Mark chapter 10 and use this lens, how we think about this Johari window. I'm going to go to Mark chapter 10, verse 17. You can go there with me. It's about this young man and interaction he had with Jesus. Uh, Matthew tells us the same story and says that he was young and he was rich. As Jesus started on his way, a man ran up to him and fell on his knees before him. Good teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Why do you call me good? Jesus answered, no one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not give false testimony. You shall not defraud. Honor your father and mother. Teacher, he declared, all of these I've kept since I was a boy. Whew, I'm good. He clearly thinks he's about to get Jesus' stamp of approval on his life, right? Good to go. I've kept those, no problem. It says in verse 21, Jesus looked at him and loved him. Isn't that precious? He's about to deliver truth to this man. But it says he looked at him and he loved him. He wasn't judging him, wasn't angry at him. He loved him, and so he gave him this truth. He said, one thing you lack, go sell everything that you have, give it to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come and follow me. At this, the man's face fell. He went away sad because he had great wealth. Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, how hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. So as we think about this Johari window in this story, see, Jesus was giving this young man feedback about himself that he did not know. Jesus knew it. Probably everyone else in his life knew it, but this man didn't know it. 
He had a blind spot. He had a problem with how he viewed his possessions. They had a hold of him. We don't know why. Maybe he grew up poor. Maybe he grew up with lack in his life. But they had a hold on him. He thought he was all good. He's like, I don't see it. I don't have any problem with money. I got lots of money. But you know, this is like us sometimes. We hear the hard feedback, and then we have different auto, autonomic stress responses. And you've heard of this, the fight, flight, freeze responses. We hear that hard feedback, and we're like, okay, this is stressful. And then all of a sudden, we have a gut instinct. How many of you all have a fight response? <laughs> You come up swinging. The first time someone brings that hard thing to you, that's stressful, and you're like, oh, no, that's not how this is going to go down. Let me tell you something about this. You, you hear you're a stingy person. That's what you hear to this. And this man could have responded like that. He could have started defending himself and said, no, I give to this cause and this cause, and you know what? I, I earned all this. This isn't, this isn't something that, I, you know, somebody gave me. We start to defend ourselves. We start talking a mile a minute. We got to prove them wrong. This is unjust. How dare they say that to us? Don't let anyone else get a word in. We don't actually stop to listen, to self-reflect, and consider. You know, mouth open, we stop hearing. James 1, verse 19, he said, My dear brothers, take note of this. Everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, slow to become angry. We've got to listen. If we know our, our response is to fight, we've got to just... I got to listen. I know I got to listen. I don't want to listen, but I got to listen. Second thing, how many of you are flight? You just run away. <laughs> I, know, I know some of you all in this room. That's your, that is your autonomic stress response. When somebody comes up and challenges you about something, you're going to just take off. Got to go. I can't stick around. That's what this young man's response was, right? Says he walked away, sad. He just left. He left the conversation. He wasn't going to stick around to hear anymore. And you know what? We worry we're going to be victimized by the person who's given us feedback. It's too hard. It's too painful to hear. We avoid it. You know, I used to coach musicians and singers, songwriters, and man, it's like that thing is my baby. Don't touch it. Don't talk about it. I can't. It's just that one thing we can't have people touch in our life. Can't have people talk about that. Why? How do we hear those questions about our blind spots? You know, if we struggle with insecurity, and most of us have some kind of insecurity, then we might hear this as a confirmation of our own lack of value. That lack of confidence makes me think, oh, I'm a failure. If I internalize it, if, if you're right, then I'm a failure. And we hear wrong. We don't hear this isn't good. What you're doing, this practice isn't good. We hear you aren't good. You are a failure. We internalize that. But we've got to stop 
and reframe our thinking. Understand where our value comes from. It comes from your position in God. You know, he created you as a human being with infinite value and infinite worth. He created you around purpose. He gave you unique gifts, unique abilities, because he wanted you to do something in particular. He places so much value on who you are that he came down, abandoned his power, clothed himself in human flesh, and died for you. That's how valuable you are. That's the way you should see yourself. That's the way you should start. And when you understand where your value comes from, that foundational starting point, then the things that need to grow in your life and in my life, they don't make us less value. Think about it like this. If you were to hear from your doctor that you had kidney failure, you wouldn't internalize that and say, oh man, my kidney has failed. I'm a failure. I must be garbage. I must be junk. I'll just let it go and ignore it. And... That's it, right? No, no. If we know that our kidney is failing, we say, I got to go fix it. I got to go do whatever I need to do to fix it because my life is too valuable. My body is too valuable for me to just let it die, for me to just let it go away. It's too valuable. Mark says that Jesus looked at this rich young man and he loved him. Where's that feedback coming from about that blind spot in our life? Is it coming from somebody who loves us? Is it coming from Jesus who loves us? Then it's a trusted source. Maybe just change the way you're hearing. If someone's saying, hey, let's change this, maybe it's just, let's take another round of edits on it. Not you failed. Or if you hear they're questioning my ability, maybe they're just saying, let's try a different approach. Just hold it loosely. Don't internalize it, externalize it. Sometimes if it's somebody who you know they're wrong about it and they're experiencing you in a negative way, it gives you feedback about who they are, how they're feeling. That third autonomic stress response is to freeze, to shut down. You know, my grandson, this is his, this is his response. He's two years old. You know, as soon as he gets corrected about something, it's this. He's not going to talk to anybody. You know, he goes off into the corner just all by himself. Just pouts. Any, any of you like that? You're a freezer. You know, you just, I, I'm not going to do it. I'm not going to, you write it off. You shut yourself, you, you, you shut yourself off from those relationships, from those people. You're like, no, I'm not going to listen to that. Refuse to engage. They're all just jealous of me. You know, there's ways around these stress responses that we have that cause us to have a hard time hearing. The first thing is in that Johari window, whenever there's something that you don't know, start by asking. Don't wait for someone to tell you. Ask, say, what do I need to know that I don't know? If there's things that are hidden, Start by telling. Don't wait to be asked. Tell somebody. Tell people what you're hiding. You know, we're, we, we say too little too often, I think, in church life especially. We get really good at hiding what's going on in our lives, and we come in with the hallelujah, praise the Lord, bless God. I'm wearing my tie and my suit, and I look sharp, so everything looks good, and you don't know what's going on in my life. 
you know, those things, we hide it because of shame. It's that sense of hopelessness, helplessness. Those things can keep power over us. We can't get rid of it as long as it's hidden. But when we are open and say, okay, this, this is not going to have power over me anymore. I'm going to share. We need to be quick to wrap our arms around people, to love them, to be patient with each other, to help each other, to care for each other. You know, sometimes we say too much, too. You know, there's a lot of pressure in our culture to, like, tell it like it is. And sometimes, I know you've met that person who's like, I don't know you, but you just told me all the major problems in your life. We just met 15 minutes ago. We got to be careful with who we're talking to about what in our life. You know, I think classic example this week was Prince Harry. Anyone notice a little bit of oversharing happening this week in our culture? And everyone's talking about it, right? But if you can't, if you can't, if you tell everyone everything to everyone, then you're not going to be intimate with anyone. You know, there's relationships that are close for a reason. And we have developed that, that awareness to know who we can share with the ones to to share with the ones who are closest to us. We need wisdom in what we say to who. You know, sometimes we'll tell the wrong people. Sometimes we're telling our wisdom to the wrong people. You know, we need wisdom in how to share wisdom with people. You know, when someone's telling us about what's going on, a lot of questions help people come to conclusions without telling them. That's how people learn. So let's go back to Jesus and this rich young ruler. Pastor Russell, if you can come. I think this young man ran because he was afraid of what Jesus was asking. God, please don't let me go there. God, don't ask me to give that thing up. God, don't ask me to give that person up. And Jesus addressed that young man's fear after he'd already run away. And verse 23 again, it says, Jesus said to his disciples, how hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were amazed at his words. And now Jesus wasn't talking about heaven. He was talking about the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is God's rulership here on earth. It's true discipleship. It's when we say, Jesus, lead my life. You're in charge. But Jesus said again, children, how hard it is to enter the kingdom of God. It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who's rich to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were even more amazed and said to each other, who then can be saved? You know, these, these guys were businessmen. You know, they had boats. They were fishermen. The, what, what's the scale of richness that makes this so impossible? How do we, what hope is there for any of us? And Jesus looked at them and said, with man, this is impossible, but not with God. All things are possible with God. Then, G- then Peter spoke up and he said, we've left everything to follow you. Can you hear the fear underneath this? He's like, man, if there's no hope for him, how's there hope for us? Truly I tell you, Jesus replied, no one who's left home or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or fields for me and the gospel will fail to receive a hundred times as much in this present home in this present age, in homes and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and fields, along with persecutions, and in the age to come, eternal life. But many who are first will be last and the last first. Jesus is saying, hey, if you've sacrificed, 
If you sacrificed for the gospel, if you've left your family, I'm gonna give you family in return. If you've sacrificed your finances, I'm gonna provide for needs in return. You cannot outgive God in this life and in the life to come. He's not just talking about some eternal home. He's talking about right here and right now. He's saying, yes, there will be persecution. Yes, you will go through tests. Yes, you will go through hard times that take you to your limit. But God will be right there with everything that you need for this life. He will be right there. He's going to meet you right there. See, he spoke to this rich man's needs, his fears, and the disciples' fears in that moment. When we're obedient and say, God, I'm going to give you all everything. I'm going to submit everything to you. He's right there to carry us through. What are we holding on to? Because we're afraid. Where do we need wisdom? Because what we're doing is not working. Maybe consider these questions this morning. You can write these down if you want to think about them later in prayer. What do I need to learn? What do I still need to learn? What are my blind spots? We can ask God to reveal them. If we have no idea, let me tell you, our spouse will have no problem telling us. Your kids will have no problem telling you. What's a long-term goal that I could make about this? What do I want this to look like? It's not working now. What's a picture of a future that could be different, that could be great? 